Well, this morning, um, if you're able, I invite you to stand as we hear the word of the Lord read together. I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Acts 28, 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases, also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. may be seated. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the time we have spent in the book of Acts. Uh, Father, we ask this morning as we consider... Um, this passage towards the end of the book, uh, you give us wisdom uh, that our hearts would be challenged, instructed, encouraged. Uh, Lord, we thank you um, that you tell us that your word does not go out void. Uh, we pray, Lord, that it would settle in our hearts today. Amen. Pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. And it's the last time I get to say that. Dave gets to say it one more time. But uh, that's the last time I get to say it. We're continuing our study of the book of Acts today, and we are looking at Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. And over the past few weeks, uh, we've been following Paul's journey from uh, Caesarea to Rome. And last week, as we studied chapter 27 of Acts, uh, you know, we, we read about Paul's disastrous trip at sea. Paul, you know, under the care of a centurion, he set sail for Rome, kind of at the end of what they considered to be a safe sailing season back then. And, and as they sail, they encounter winds uh, that blow them in the wrong direction, uh, followed by a massive storm that threatens the lives of everyone aboard the ship. And, and in the midst of this storm, Paul gets up and he speaks to encourage those on board that God, through an angel, has assured Paul that even though the ship will be lost, that all who are on the ship will survive. And chapter 27 ended as they, they spot land Um, They strike a reef in their efforts to reach that land, and then they're forced to swim towards the shore. And chapter 27 tells this harrowing tale of of, of dangers experienced and um, escaped at sea, and it ends with the words, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. So the conclusion of this 
uh, wild tale at sea ends with this idea that they are all safely brought to land just as God said he would. And in chapter 28, uh, Luke tells us about their time spent on this land, on this little island uh, where they found a refuge from the dangers of the sea. And so over the, over the preceding chapters of Acts, uh, Luke's concern has, has been to make Paul's innocence clear to us. Uh, Paul has been proven innocent of breaking Jewish law, uh, and Paul has been proven innocent of breaking Roman law in multiple courtrooms. And now on the island of Malta, uh, Paul's innocence is further vindicated as he experiences and responds uh, to the continuation of incredibly difficult circumstances. In the, in the first 10 verses of this chapter, uh, Paul's innocence is tested and confirmed uh, by the pagan worldview of the people of Malta as he experiences and faithfully responds to the difficult circumstances that come his way. You know, in our, in our culture, uh, there's a phrase, uh, you may have heard it, um, it comes from Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, which I had to Google. Um, <laughs> I've told you all about my struggles with uh, classic literature and, and poetry before. Um, but I Googled the, the, the Merchant of Venice. Uh, the phrase is, the truth will out, or just truth will out. Um, and truth will out is short for the idea that if something's true, then it will reveal itself because truth can't remain hidden. And it's something of a, a noble sentiment. Uh, things may seem bleak in the moment, but don't worry, the truth will out. Um, a more recent version of this idea that I didn't have to Google um, is the phrase, the ball doesn't lie. Uh, y'all may have heard the ball doesn't lie before. Um, it came from the theologian Rashid, Rashid Wallace. Um, just kidding, He's a, he was a basketball player for the Detroit Pistons um, uh, who popular, popularized the phrase. And um, maybe some of you have heard this phrase. Uh, maybe some of you have used it. Uh, I have used it for many years, especially in college, uh, playing soccer and ultimate frisbee uh, while I was engaging in some uh, friendly trash talk on the field. And if you're new to the phrase, uh, the ball doesn't lie, here's how it works. Um, if there's an argument on the field or an argument on the court about, about a potential foul call or whether a player was out of bounds and you lose that argument and you have to give the ball to the other team, if they miss their next shot or if they immediately turn the ball back over, the proper response is to turn around and yell at them, the ball doesn't lie. Uh, <laughs> just, just teaching, you know. Um, so this is, that's how you use it. So, and, the, and what this means is that they may have won the argument and gotten the ball, but the ball, as an impartial judge, has given you the justice that you deserved. Um, and both of those phrases point to the idea that a person gets what they deserve in life. Um, it's the idea that we commonly call uh, karma. Um, that has been spread throughout many cultures. Uh, but in, in karma, instead of, the, the, instead of truth, uh, you know, truth or a ball functioning as the impartial judge uh, meeting out justice, uh, with the concept of karma, it's the universe functioning as the impartial judge meeting out justice. It's, it's the idea that if a person is a good person, uh, they will deserve and receive good circumstances. If a person is a bad person, they will deserve and receive bad circumstances. And so within this idea is the idea that the circumstances of a person's life tells you whether they're good or bad people. And that's kind of this concept behind this. And we run into this philosophy uh, that really ignores God, uh, ignores a lot of the truths of the Bible about suffering and the life of, uh, in our lives. Uh, but we run into this philosophy that ignores the God and the truths of the Bible uh, while setting up um, an impartial universe as the explanation and the source of justice uh, we ignore it in our culture, um, and even at times among those within the church. And this is true today, and it was true in Paul's time as well. 
those who reject or perhaps maybe just misunderstand uh, the God and the truths of the Bible regarding suffering uh, often interpret difficult or painful circumstances as punishment uh, for the wrong a person has done. And so in the book of Acts, Paul has been found innocent um, in the courtrooms of, Roman, of the Romans multiple times, right? He, uh, they've said um, he's innocent. He's been declared innocent three or four times now. Uh, he's been proven to be innocent according to the laws of the Jews. He's been proven to be innocent according to the laws of the Romans. And in this chapter, we're going to see that as he suffers difficult circumstances, uh, Paul is proven to be innocent even by the pagan worldview of his day. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, he wants to leave us with no room for doubt about Paul's innocence as his trial in Rome, um, as his trial in Rome before Caesar approaches. And so on the island of Malta, Paul's innocence is further tested and further vindicated as he experiences and responds to the continuation of incredibly difficult circumstances, the difficult circumstances that have been ongoing, but especially last week in the middle of the storm, they find him and follow him in Malta. And since we, all, uh, since we also um, know that we will be tested in our lives uh, by the arrival and continued presence of difficult circumstances, we need to pay close attention uh, to the truths we find in our passage today. And so this morning, we're going to walk through this passage together. Uh, then we're going to spend just a few minutes uh, looking at four ways that we should respond uh, when we are tested by the difficult circumstances that we experience in this world. And as we begin, um, this chapter begins um, telling us about Paul and those on the ship, um, how they come ashore on the island of Malta. So I'm going to reread verses 1 through 2 for us. They say, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. All right, so as this chapter begins, Luke reiterates that Paul and the 275 others who were on the ship, they've all survived, uh, just as Paul said that they would when he spoke to them during the storm. And here on the shore, they learn uh, that they are on the island of Malta, which means refuge. Uh, Malta is a small island. Um, it's 18 miles in length. It's eight miles wide. It possesses, uh, possesses uh, good natural harbors, uh, which is why it was called Refuge. And Malta belonged to the nation of Carthage until 218 BC when Rome took the island from Carthage. And so what, you, what this creates is this unique setting uh, where after Rome took the island, they settled their um, soldiers and so the families of soldiers on Malta. And so the population was really comprised of those who were kind of transplanted there from Rome onto, onto Malta who spoke Latin and Greek. And then the original habit, habitats uh, who are from Malta who spoke uh, Punic. And this is why Luke, in these verses, describes the native people that they encounter on the beach as barbarians. Um, if you may even have a little footnote that says barbarians instead of native people. Um, he doesn't call them barbarians uh, because they were unintelligent, because they were necessarily uncultured. Uh, he calls them barbarians because um, the locals didn't speak Greek. That's what the, uh, that was the main point. They, they just didn't speak Greek, and so they were barbarians. Well, Paul and the others from the ship, they arrive on the island. Um, they're out of the sea, uh, right? They get made it out of the sea, only wearing the wet clothes that they had when they jumped into the sea. And Luke notes that they are received uh, with an unusually kind welcome from the people of Malta. And the reason why it's unusually kind is because this is not always how shipwrecked people were uh, welcomed. Uh, often those who were shipwrecked were faced with death or imprisonment or slavery at the hands of the inhabitants of the land. And so that's not the case at Malta. Uh, they light fires for this cold and tired group uh, to warm themselves, to dry themselves at. And so 
out of the dangers of the sea, Paul and those on the ship with him are delivered uh, to a place of refuge, and they are kindly received. Um, and this is a, one of the blessings we see in this story, as God cares for them. And then in verses 3 through 9, uh, we read of two instances when Paul's innocence is challenged and then vindicated during his time on Malta. And we're going to begin by looking at um, the first instance, which we find in verses 3 through 6. So I'm going to reread verses 3 through 6 for us. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So in these verses, we find Paul helping to gather wood uh, to fuel the fires that they were using to dry and to warm Paul and his companions from the shipwreck. And as Paul is placing his little bundle of wood into the fire, a viper from among the sticks latches onto his hand. And the people of the island react in an interesting way. Um, as soon as they see Paul bitten by the snake, they decide that, well, he must have been a murderer. Uh, he, he may have escaped the shipwreck, but their, their goddess justice has not let him escape unpunished. And here we see this idea that Paul must be a bad person because bad things have happened to him in action, right? Uh, and, in, and in his commentary on this passage, uh, William Larkin tells us that the people of Malta, uh, with their Punic background, viewed their gods, especially their goddess named Justice, as using nature uh, for finding justice, for retribution, for punishment, and especially using the un unpredictable sea. And so essentially the people of Malta see this Roman prisoner who managed to escape the sea, bitten by a snake, and they determined that Paul must be the worst kind of criminal because the snake doesn't lie. Um, however, Paul uh, just shakes off the snake. Uh, he goes about his business. And so uh, they begin to watch him intently, waiting to see the unexpected effect or the expected effects of the snake bite. Um, it tells us that they wait to see if Paul's going to swell up or if he's going to fall down dead. Um, I, personally, I would be concerned if I was bitten by a snake and then everybody started watching me really closely for several hours. Um, it's pretty clear what they're looking for. Uh, but after they waited a long time and nothing happens, uh, they conclude that not only is Paul not a murderer, but that he must be a god. Uh, that's the logical conclusion um, of their understanding of the world. You know, if Paul dies from the bite like he's supposed to, uh, then he was a murderer who deserved to die. If he survives, then he has done something miraculous, and he must therefore be a god. And this is not, uh, the, not the first time in the book of Acts that a miracle um, of Paul leads crowds to believe that he's a god. Uh, it's happened before in Acts 14 um, and Lystra as well. And, and so as the, one of the things we see in the book of Acts is that as the message of the gospel goes out, it is often confirmed by the presence of miracles. And we see this often in the early chapters of Acts. And when this happens... Frequently, the Gentiles don't know what to make of these miracles because unlike the Jews, they don't really have a category that explains men performing miracles. To the Gentiles, if a man does something that he's not supposed to be able to do, if a man does a miracle, then he can't be a man. He must be a god who looks like a man. Um, and that's how their understanding their worldview shaped their explanation of what was happening. And William Larkin, he comments on this by saying, uh, the islanders about face shows the power of a worldview for interpreting experiences 
and how a non-Christian worldview often won't get it right. Yeah, they're starting with a worldview that excludes the one God, the true God of Scripture, uh, but it allows for many, many, many gods um, who uh, may even look like men, act like men, and be worse than men. And so when they explain what's happening, uh, they go, well, he, well he's bitten by, bitten by a snake. He's going to die. He's like a murderer. He doesn't die. Well, then he must be a god. And um, listen to how Simon Kistemacher explains what this miracle proves to the people. He says, uh, both at sea and on the land... Paul performs extraordinary feats to indicate that he is a servant of God. The snake bite is not a freak accident, but a divinely directed incident in which God displays his power and might. And so that's the lesson that they're supposed to learn from this moment. Uh, you know, the fact that Paul survived the shipwreck and the snake bite confirms his innocence in the minds of the people. They even, not only do they now believe he's innocent and not a murderer, they believe that he's actually associated with the gods. And so we encounter the first of two instances when Paul's innocence is challenged and then vindicated during his time in Malta, uh, when he's bitten by the snake and when he survives the snake bite. Uh, the second instance when Paul's innocence is challenged and vindicated during his time in Malta is in verses 7 through 9. So let me read verses 7 through 9 for us. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And so in this section, uh, we don't know just how much time has passed between the scene on the beach, when he's bitten by the snake, and now. But in light of the notoriety that Paul had gained from surviving the snake bite, uh, it makes sense that he would have been introduced pretty quickly to the chief man of the island. And so in these verses, we learn that Paul is introduced to Publius, uh, who is described as the chief man of the island. Um, and that phrase, chief man of the island, it could mean that he is a powerful and wealthy landowner on a small island. It could mean that he is a government official on the island. It could mean both. Um, but Paul and the others are received by him as guests. It says that he has land near where they were shipwrecked. Uh, so they received as guests for three days while their housing was being found for Paul and the other survivors. And while he's there, Paul learns that Publius' father is seriously ill. And uh, this was interesting, I uh, read in the commentary. So up until mid-1800s, the milk from the goats of Malta could cause an illness called Malta fever. Um, and, and that is likely what's described here, uh, where they would drink the, there's some sort of enzyme in the milk. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Uh, but uh, uh, some sort of enzyme in the milk that can potentially give you a fever from the goats of Malta. And so that's likely what's being described here. So Paul learns... Uh, that the father of his host is seriously ill. And so Paul responds by laying his hands on the man, by praying for him, and he's healed. And when the islanders hear about this miracle, everyone who's sick on Malta comes to Paul to be healed. And as we read this, it reminds us of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is staying with Simon, who is later called Peter, um, and Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And when word gets out, the whole town comes to him for healing. Uh, but unlike Jesus, Paul doesn't heal with his own power. He heals, Paul heals to the power in the name of his Lord Jesus. And so Paul heals his father, uh, this man's father. The whole island comes to him and is healed. And after this healing work of Paul, if there were any doubters left on Malta that Paul was a good and innocent man, uh, this, this silenced those doubts. Because in their understanding of the world, men deserving of the death sentence don't heal all of the diseased people on an island. And so in verses 7 through 9... Once again, we encounter um, Paul's innocence being challenged, Paul's innocence being vindicated, 
uh, as he responds to the circumstances he encounters. And, and then in verse 10, Luke concludes this very short recounting of their time, uh, which was actually three months long. Uh, he recounts this three-month-long stay in just 10 verses for us. I'm going to read verse 10. It says, uh, They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so Paul and the other survivors, um, they arrived on Malta with next to nothing, right? They, they jumped into an ocean. They swam to the shore, so they have wet clothes. That's all they own. Uh, but in gratitude for Paul's healing work among them, uh, the people of Malta give them all of the supplies that their continued journey to Rome requires. And this response to the, to, uh, of the islanders, it further confirms their belief in his innocence. You know, on the island of Malta, uh, Paul's innocence is vindicated again and again and again as he experiences and responds uh, to difficult circumstances. Uh, and so Paul, the shipwrecked prisoner suspected of murder when he first arrives, uh, he departs the island uh, treated as a friend and as a celebrity. And so in these 10 verses, Luke recounts for us you know, these kind of crucial early moments of a three-month stay on the island of Malta. And, and this passage at the beginning of chapter 28 is such an interesting passage. Uh, for one, uh, like chapter 27, it's full of historical details. Uh, we learn about the island. We're given the name of the chief man on the island. We hear the words of those who witnessed the snake bite. So just as he did in chapter 27, Luke provides us with details that ground the story in real history. Uh, but even more interesting is... Uh, the noticeable absence of any stories about Paul discouraging them from believing that he was a god or any stories of Paul proclaiming the gospel during his stay in Malta. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, Paul travels around proclaiming the gospel. That, that's what he's been doing. Uh, that's why he's hated by the Jews. Uh, he won't stop proclaiming the good news of forgiveness for sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. But in Luke's summary of their time in Malta, he doesn't mention the gospel. Uh, he doesn't even mention Paul saying, no, I'm not a God. Let me tell you about the real God, uh, like you would expect to hear. And in light of that, um, in light of the rest of the book of Acts, this is surprising to us and probably, and it requires a little bit of explanation. Um, and so I'm going to give us two um, likely explanations for Luke not recording any preaching or teaching while they were on Malta. Uh, first, at this point in the book of Acts, uh, Luke is just kind of, I think Dave has said this before, laser focused, right? He's laser focused on getting Paul's story to Rome. Uh, you know, undoubtedly, Paul explained that he wasn't a god, um, that he was healing people in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that from the character of Paul, from past experience with Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, but as Luke summarizes this three-month stay on Malta, his emphasis is primarily on moving the story from Caesarea to the shipwreck to the departure for Rome from this island. And so he chooses just two stories uh, from their time on Malta, which were from the earliest days on the island that explained their survival and how, how did they survive when they shipwrecked and also explains their preferential treatment while they were on Malta and, and leaving, departed, uh, with, provided with all that they need. And so Luke chooses two stories that explain the situation, how they survived and how they received preferential treatment while they were there. So that's kind of the first explanation for it. The second, um, second Luke highlights these miracles on Malta because Luke's point is that these miracles and the response to them uh, confirm the man as well as the message. You know, often in the book of Acts, miracles accompany the message of the gospel to help confirm the truth of the gospel. And here we have these miracles confirming uh, the work of Paul, um, the innocence of Paul. It's, it's as if Luke is reporting on Paul's time on Malta and asking, you know, could a guilty man do this, right? Um, 
Could a man deserving of death have done these things in, the, in this power? Could he have been shown himself to be so close to God and still be guilty? And, and so in most of Acts, you know, we hear about the ministry of Paul as he travels from city to city. But in, uh, in chapter 28, uh, Luke focuses on Paul's journey to Rome and on Paul's innocence. And so in the book of Acts, you know, what we see is that Paul has been found innocent uh, in the court of the Romans multiple times. Uh, he has been proven to be innocent according to the laws of the Jews. He's been proven to be innocent according to the Roman laws. And in this chapter, we've seen that Paul has proven to be innocent even by the pagan worldview of the, his day. Uh, and during his time on the ship, during his time on the island of Malta, Paul faced incredibly difficult circumstances uh, that served as a test in the minds of those with him, test of the, in the minds of those who see Paul, and he responded faithfully to the challenges of those circumstances. And this helped convince the people of Malta of his innocence, and it helps us uh, by providing us with an instructive example in how we should respond when we're tested by the inevitable, inevitable arrival of difficult circumstances in this life. And so this morning, before we go, uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at four ways that we should respond when we are faced by difficult circumstances in this life uh, that we see illustrated for us in this passage. And the first way, the first way that we should respond when we are faced by difficult circumstances in this life is by continuing to faithfully obey God's commands, no matter our circumstances. Uh, by continuing to faithfully obey God's commands, no matter our circumstances. You know, as you read uh, the concluding chapters of Acts, uh, Luke wants to make certain that his readers understand that even though Paul is on trial, even though he's facing death, that he's innocent. And Luke does this because the public and private innocence of Paul affects how people view and receive Paul's message of the God when he preaches the gospel. You know, in every courtroom, Paul tells the story of being transformed by the gospel, transformed by his encounter with the Jesus he had once persecuted. You know, Paul's enemies want to use his chains as proof that Paul's message is false. And so Luke labors to show us that Paul is in change, not because his message is false, but because his message is true and they hate it. In, in Paul, we have an example of continuing to faithfully obey God's commands, uh, no matter our circumstances. His life proved his innocence, and his innocence proves the message of the gospel. That's the connection Luke is making for us over these last few chapters. You know, often uh, when we're faced with difficult circumstances, uh, we want to use them as an excuse to disobey God's commands. Uh, we want to rationalize the circumstance, you know, this is what's going on. It's okay for me to break God's rules. Uh, but what we see in this passage is that these challenging moments are not only private tests of character, but they're also public tests of the truthfulness of the gospel we claim. Uh, when we're faced with difficult circumstances, you know, are we prepared to continue obeying God's commands? You know, will our obedience, even under duress, uh, will it be there? Will it confirm the truth of the gospel? Will our continued repentance when we fail, will, will it confirm the truth of the gospel? And in this passage, we see the importance. We see the importance of living our lives in obedience to God's commands um, as confirmation to a watching world of the message of the gospel. And so the first way that we should respond when we are faced by difficult circumstances in this life is by continuing to faithfully obey God's commands no matter what our circumstances. The second way that we should respond when we are faced by difficult circumstances in this life is by continuing to faithfully fulfill God's mission no matter our circumstances. So by continuing to faithfully fulfill 
God's mission no matter our circumstances. You know, on, on the ship in the middle of a storm or on an island following shipwreck, Paul continues to faithfully fulfill God's mission as he loves and serves others, even through his own suffering and hardship. You know, one of the challenges for us is that when we're suffering, you know, our tendency is to withdraw. Uh, we, want, we want to pull back from others. Uh, we want to focus on our own suffering. Uh, we just want to get through. Um, you know, we, we treat suffering as permission uh, to kind of push pause on life. We want to push pause on fulfilling our mission of making disciples, of carrying the love of Christ to others. Um, and, and the reality is that's our mission, whether it's fulfilled in the home or it's fulfilled in the workplace or in the public sphere. Uh, we've been given a mission. And so in this passage, we see the value of continuing uh, to pursue this mission, even and especially during our own seasons of difficulty, because our commitment to the mission during difficulty confirms the message of the gospel. Uh, you may be seeing a pattern here. <laughs> uh, the truth will out, right? The truthfulness of the gospel is lived, as it's lived out uh, by God's people confirms the truth of the gospel. And so we continue in this, uh, to live out God's mission loving and serving others, carrying the message of the gospel, even as we suffer, even as we struggle. Because as we do this through our suffering, through our struggling, it actually further confirms the truth of what we're saying. And so the second way uh, that we should respond when we're faced by difficult circumstances um, is by continuing to faithfully fulfill God's mission, no matter the circumstances. The third way we should respond uh, when we are faced by difficult circumstances in this life is by continuing to faithfully entrust ourselves to the promises of our faithful God, uh, no matter our circumstances. I got a little carried away with that one. It's long. Um, by continuing to faithfully entrust ourselves to the promises of our faithful God, no matter our circumstances. You know, often as Christians, uh, we still view um, our experiences and our circumstances through the lens of karma that's kind of is invasive in our culture. Uh, if we do well, uh, we deserve good circumstances. If we do poorly, we deserve bad circumstances. Uh, like the inhabitants of Malta, we often will look at our circumstances and consider them to be judgments on our behavior. And when we do the right thing, um, and difficult circumstances or suffering enters into our lives anyway, uh, we want to accuse God of breaking his contract with us. Um, even though the Bible makes it clear that the righteous will suffer, um, because this is so um, pervasive in our culture, this idea that if you do the right thing, you get the right result. If you do the wrong thing, you get the wrong result. Um, even as Christians, even with clear biblical teaching about suffering and, and, right, and those righteous will suffer, we still feel this way. When suffering, when difficult circumstances enter our lives, we feel like God's broken his commitments to us. And so we start to reject in our hearts his promises. We think, well, if he broke this one, he'll break all of them. And so we need to better understand the biblical teachings around suffering. Um, and as we suffer, as difficult circumstances enter our lives, uh, we need to remain committed to trusting God's promises because he is faithful. Uh, the reality is, and it's, it's not, a, not a fun reality, but the reality is uh, there's work in our hearts that needs to be done that is only accomplished through hardship. Uh, there are opportunities for our faithfulness in and through suffering to bear witness to the truth of the gospel that are only present in suffering and hardship. Um, the presence of difficult circumstances in our lives is not evidence that God cannot be trusted. Um, it's not evidence that it's time to take the wheel for ourselves. Um, and I'm going to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon where he talks about uh, the presence of difficult circumstances in our lives and our continuing to entrust ourselves to the promises of God anyway. He says, 
Uh, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. He says, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Uh, I lived with that quote on my office wall for years, trying to learn and live that, right? You know, in this, in this passage, Paul shows us the importance of continuing to entrust ourselves to the promises of our faithful God. Um, even as he's bitten by a viper and the locals start staring at him, expecting him to swell up and die, uh, Paul goes about his business because God told him that Paul would be his witness in Rome. And so Paul is continuing to trust God's promises. And so the third way, a third way we respond when we are faced by difficult circumstances in life is by continuing to entrust ourselves to the promises of our faithful God. Uh, the fourth way that we should respond when we're faced by difficult circumstances in this life is by continuing to rely on the grace of Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstances. Uh, by continuing to rely on the grace of Jesus Christ, no matter our circumstances. You know, in this passage, Paul faithfully models for us how we should respond in difficult circumstances. But, you know, Paul would have been the first one uh, to tell us that none of this is possible without the transforming and empowering grace found in Jesus Christ. You know, in, in the Bible, uh, faithfulness is not perfection. Faithfulness includes living in the grace of God in the moments when we fail. Whether we're talking about King David in the Old Testament, we're talking about Paul in the New Testament, or about many of the others uh, who lived imperfectly but were counted faithful in Jesus Christ through grace, um, they faced challenges in this life. And it's in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I want to read this for us. Uh, Paul says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In these verses, Paul writes uh, from prison, and he explains that he has learned contentment in any and every circumstance because the Lord is with him and because the Lord strengthens him. You know, Paul responds to the circumstances of, of life by looking to and relying on the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we are tested uh, by our circumstances, uh, by our changing seasons, uh, let us continue to rely on the abundant provision of grace for us found in Jesus Christ as we seek to respond faithfully to the challenges that come our way, as we seek to live as faithful witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us.